Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I'm delighted to be here, and I don't want to hear any shit about the time we've had off. It happens. Can I read you a going on? Can I read you a tweet from D. Grantham? What did I just say? One minute ago. What did I just say? One minute ago. Jeez. (laughs) <laughs> to we the fifth, Camille, MC Moynihan, Matt Welch, Anthony Fisher. I'm the Matt Welch in that mm-hmm. picture. This is an official notification from the National Association of Weeklies. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is our duty to inform you that your almost status is at risk of relocation. <laughs> immediate action is required on your part to maintain your status. That's pretty immediate. That's yeah. one minute. We I, got I our have an notice. immediate official response. Uh-oh. Blow me. Oh, no. <laughs> um, no, seriously, I'm, I'm delighted to be back. Um, we, we can't do the Voltron thing because Michael Moynihan is someplace in the world doing whatever it is he does. Um, but I am flanked by some extraordinary gentlemen, as I usually am. Matt Welch, editor of Large Reason Magazine, is in the building. Anthony Fisher, the politics editor at Insider, is here. And we also have a wonderful, extraordinary guest here in the room is my very good friend, Coleman Hughes. Coleman, thank you for being here. Honor to be here. Coleman, contributor to Quillette, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Guardian, various other Not places. Guardian. I thought there was some European paper that you had. Spectator. Some, spectator. Okay. You've contributed a lot of shit in a lot of places. And you just testified before Congress this week. Which committee is it? Actually, you know better. Subcommittee for the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties. Boom. That's exactly right. And it was uh, about reparations right. for slavery yes. and various other things. Yes. Yeah. So I want to talk about that. Okay. Um, I'm delighted that you're here because there's been a lot of, uh, there were interesting things said. There was interesting coverage afterwards. And there's been some uh, predictable fallout mm. from that uh, from that whole thing. Yes. Um, but before we get there, I wanted to just see how you guys are doing, how everybody's feeling. Everybody feeling okay? It's been a little while. I mean, you're the one. We haven't we haven't heard from you. We don't know anything about you. <laughs> I've got the occasional check-in. All we get but, uh, is like the 10 minutes of the thing that you can talk about um, when the microphones aren't rolling. <laughs> we absolutely can't It's just because talk. it's so traumatic for me. I'm, I'm doing a bit of home renovating in this new place that I bought in Prospect Heights. And it's just, it's challenging and demanding. And I've got to move out of my place pretty soon. So I'm trying to get it finished. So myself... And my wife and my daughter and the dog have some place to live. <laughs> um, and it's uh, it's challenging. Just want to say that. But I've learned a great deal about cement and hammers um, and uh, pulling up. Are you like, do you floor. have the mixer like on, on property, on location? I mean, mixer. God. See? I was going to, I was going to say, if you mean Jose, yes. Oh. But when I say, if you mean Jose, I really mean like my good friend Jose, who has been my consigliere on this entire project. If not for him, I would be like in a corner, just heartbroken and sad. But he's been there like every step of the way, helping me through this horrible shit show, um, which is like home ownership in New York City, which involves buying a house that is pretty much new and discovering you've got a lot of work to do. Well, thankfully, the New York uh, City Council and state legislature don't 
arrange the laws about what a <laughs> property owner can do with his or her property every three or four weeks. I don't want to so. talk about it. This is this is the reason I can't talk about it on the mic because it gives me angst talking about the awfulness that I feel every time I think about the Department of Buildings coming in with some like stop work order. Um, I, I'm just terrified. I'm terrified that I will get one of those and then for a month I won't be able to do anything and I will have nowhere to live, but it'll be beautiful and it'll be extraordinary at the end of all of this. I think it'll be fine and I like my new neighborhood despite the fact that the school across the street is trying to self-destruct, but we'll get to that later, maybe. See, did I just bring down the energy a little yeah. bit? Are we listening? Are we, I said I was excited to be with you guys. <laughs> Damn it. With empathy, you know, yeah. can suck the air out of the room. Right. Sleep on my couch if worse comes to worse. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that, Colvin. We, we might have more special dispatches about just NYC bureaucratic problems. I'm going to start a home renovation podcast. This, uh, that, that this would new be the house. first time that this podcast really felt like a libertarian podcast. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and on that note. Every once in a while. Every once in a while. Um, well, well, maybe we'll just turn our attention to, to the great man who is in the room with us and the very exciting week that you had. Coleman, how did this, uh, this thing come to pass? You ended up testifying on Capitol Hill. Somebody reached out to me via email who works for the Republicans and asked if I would like to testify. I promptly asked uh, the usual four or five people I go to for advice, mm -hmm. among whom yourself. Yeah, I wasn't going to disclose that, but you have. Yeah, I would say almost everyone said, stay the fuck away. <laughs> <laughs> stay the hell away. And I did. I turned it down at first and then I thought about it for 30 minutes. It felt mm -hmm. wrong to turn it down. So then I, I texted him back and said I can do it. Mm hmm. And, uh, you know, called and made it clear that there would be no constraints on what I'm able to say and that there's no sense in which I have to be partisan. So it felt like I would be turning down a huge opportunity. You know, I pictured Bill H.R. 40, which is the, the bill to consider a national apology and uh, and reparations for slavery. I pictured it hypothetically passing. And the feeling I would have knowing I had an opportunity to say something mm -hmm. and I passed it up out of fear of being branded as uh, essentially a Candace Owens type. And I, that felt it felt cowardly. So I I decided to do it mm -hmm. to be clear here. What was Camille's advice? <laughs> well, Camille no, 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 gave no, some no. nuanced advice. Yeah. <laughs> I do that sort of thing every once yeah. in a while. Yeah. First he, of all, it's the, a bumper sticker. He nudged me not to do it, but was not completely anti. Mm -hmm. I, I would say most other people were just like, dude. <laughs> well, I feel I'd feel uncomfortable telling you what not to do. Right. I also had a sense that you would do it um, no matter what kind of advice you got because that's just the sense that I have about you that mm -hmm. you are totally into taking on challenges like that and you've got very thick skin and you can take the bullshit that comes along with having the wrong opinions for someone who happens to look the way that you do which is pretty much what happened to you mm -hmm. so far as I can tell to the extent I've seen criticism of the things that you've had to say a lot of it has been pretty non-specific well it's specific in one way um, it's you don't speak for us. 
you don't have a right to say these things. Mm. You're a token or you're a house nigger. You're a coon. You're an Uncle Tom. I mean, the other reason, though, that I, I suggested not participating is just because I have so much contempt for members of Congress and yeah. these like bullshit hearings yeah. and the unseriousness of the whole theater. They don't ask questions of the people who they disagree with. Yeah, All they really do bizarre. is ask questions they know the answer to already mm. from the people who they love the most. Mm. And they spend the, the opening moments talking about how great you are. Oh, my God, right. you're extraordinary. What you've written about this is so important. Could you just talk to me about this thing that I already know about, which is definitely a huge problem that needs to be addressed? Could you explain? And it's really interesting because you could tell Tanahasi and I mm. were trying to respond to each other's points. But yeah. There was like a 20 or 30 minute separation in between each argumentative volley because <laughs> yeah. that's the structure of the event. <laughs> they were uh, getting in the way. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Remember those, the, uh, like a confirmation hearing or something like that. Yeah. Um, with a couple of exceptions and even that's kind of specific to the event. You know, like Mike Lee can be pretty good on a judge confirmation thing because he, he knows his stuff and he's actually uh, been in a courtroom and can be adversarial. Yeah, there are a few like people that. who take the opportunity to try to edify the public to ask questions that sort of elevate things. Or who are like they're fishing for a thing and they're mm-hmm. going to get you there because they're lawyers. Yeah. And they kind of know how to, to get to that thing. That is so rare. I mean, and usually when something is good, it, good is happening. It's like when there's just a staffer mm-hmm. who's asking the questions <laughs> when it's not a politician because the politician will be bad. But the real you know, issue with your testimony, obviously, at least that I saw, uh, not uh, having uh, a cement mixer on location at my house, <laughs> was a uh, was, <laughs> was, uh, thing that I think is a totally valid criticism, which is you're too fucking young. You're mm-hmm. just too fucking young. I mean, in, in general, it's, 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 it's not right to be that young. Um, <laughs> people shouldn't, generally speaking, be that young. Uh, when I was that young, it wasn't pretty uh, for the most part. Uh, and that's just a, that makes me mad that you're that young. So how do you respond? Well, that, that, that's what Sheila Jackson said at the end. Oh, she, my God. She said, um, I can't remember exactly the specifics, but essentially I was too young to understand my history. Yeah. And that's why I had the perspective I did. But she also said her door was always open to right. you. I, I almost picked up my laptop and <laughs> shucked it across the fucking room. <laughs> like, are you are you kidding me? Like I said, there's two ways to it. One, that's A, it's pretty condescending, but some people interpreted that as kind of, she could have been much more mean. (laughs) (laughs) She could have, but then she wouldn't have had the opportunity to be so fucking condescending. Right. So I think that's that's what she was taking advantage of. There are members of Congress who are only a couple years older than you. Right. And obviously, if I was pro-reparations, my age suddenly wouldn't matter. No, if you were pro-reparations with the caliber of performance, you would be the heir apparent to Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, if not uh, just recognized as head and shoulders above him. But you have the wrong ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, And as such, you are a dummy who needs to be schooled and eventually you will come around to your senses and you'll see the error of your ways and you'll understand that you don't know enough about history and that's why you've reached the wrong conclusions about this issue. One of the one of the things that I saw uh, people say more substantively is, is, hey, look, there's been a lot of great scholarship done on this issue for the last 10, 20 years. Mm-hmm. I have no idea this is true. I don't pay attention to any of this. Um, define great. <laughs> uh, define great, define uh, scholarship. Yeah. But uh, let's presume that there's a bunch of 
great uh, scholarship uh, on the – I don't know what that would be because it seems to be more of like basically a judgment call. Should this thing happen and why Mm -hmm. and in the modern day or should it not happen, which is much more kind of a Mm -hmm. a political or political philosophy kind of question. Philosophical debate, yeah. Yeah, more than a specific uh, historical. But that was – that was I think the Jamel Bowie uh, 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 concept was that Mm -hmm. like, hey, look, you know, you you could have any academic in the world and then we have uh, old uh, uh, 17-year-old rapper over here. But but I just don't appreciate that objection at all. Mm -hmm. Danny Glover is there. Like mm-hmm. the guy from Lethal Weapon. Like, how is he helping? Yes. Who? Cory Corey Booker is there. <laughs> the man who has imaginary friends named T-Bone. Danny, how is he Danny, helping? Danny Glover produced a Venezuelan government funded Hugo Chavez biopic and never finished it. Like, just that's just the money wow. <laughs> down, down the toilet. That's it's, a, it's the smile of, uh, of uh, yeah. communist apologies. So, yeah, so I think you might actually be, be you know, intellectually qualified to. Well, but, I mean, but here, here, here's <laughs> the problem. So. <laughs> So when someone like me gets up there and testifies as a young person who doesn't have a PhD, many people get mad because I'm not, I, I don't have the sort of credentials that you would expect an expert to have. But A, you know, what happens, I was not the first call. I was deep in the bullpen. <laughs> <laughs> I know at least two people who I won't name who are far more qualified, far older than I, who who were asked and who turned it down because they couldn't do it because they're kind of too old to travel hmm. or whatever. But you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna try to ruin the life of every person who would hypothetically take my seat, you can't be that surprised when they have to go deep in the bullpen and find hmm. a 23 year old columnist for Quillette. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the credentializing. I know you're you're a big fan of that, Matt. When people talk about degrees and things like that, <laughs> uh, but I mean, it should be noted, Ta-Nehisi Coates quite often talks about that he has no college degree. Hmm. And so their credentializing goes out the window. I guess the credential there. He's a MacArthur genius. Yes, that's that's what I was going yeah. to say. The credentials came later in different forms. But and the, also but the lack of a degree didn't stop him from getting those credentials. Rele- relevantly, he pushed the uh, intellectual case for reparations from like, are you fucking kidding me? We're not really talking about this, are we? Uh, at a Green Party convention to like maybe – us magazine, white magazine editors should really think about this. Yeah, it was very influential. I mean, it it moved the ball on the the question. Did you talk to him is what I was wondering. Yeah, what what was the interaction like? Uh, Well, he, he, uh, we were seated next to each other during Cory Booker's testimony. He just introduced himself, said, hi, I'm Mm -hmm. Ta-Nehisi. I said, hi, I'm Coleman. And that was the extent. He seemed perfectly cordial, perfectly nice. He had many, many, many fans in the room that were coming up to him constantly trying to get little piece of his attention before <laughs> and he seemed to be kind of focused mm-hmm. on what he was about to do so he was very politely kind of asking them to give yeah, him I was some just space. curious I didn't I had no yeah. idea if there was more than that or less no, than that that seems about right I, he's you know, a little I, bit too tall that's what is my <laughs> or I'm a little bit too short mm-hmm. no I mean when I've been when I've been with him it's like damn really? yeah no he's very tall, tall. but I, I would have liked to talk to him but afterwards I had to pee really, really, really bad. Like, it was like three so and a bad. half hours. Three and a half hours. Yeah. I, have, I have a tiny bladder. Even, even for how small I am already, my, my bladder is disproportionately small relative to my body. But also, as I was leaving the room, there was all kinds of hostility. During, so I, this didn't get captured on camera at all. But so when I was leaving the room to go pee with my with my... Not to go pee with my sister. Leaving the room. <laughs> leaving the room to, There's no judgment here. Exactly. <laughs> As I was leaving the room with my sister and girlfriend and friend to, to pee, mm. 
um, two or three young women started yelling. Well, somebody said like, read a book, bitch. Say, kept saying wow. that over and over again. But then wow. a couple people teamed up and started yelling, shame. Oh God. Shame. Wow. Shame. <laughs> wow. And, and then my sister was yelling back at them. And nice. they're like yelling at the top of their lungs. And I was like, holy shit, wow. I need to get out of here. So I didn't, I didn't feel like I could chit chat with people mm-hmm. though. I would have liked to have a longer conversation with ta Did it make you feel like uh bad and awkward or you're just sort of focusing on peeing so much? Uh, or did you sort of like smile like, yeah, this is pretty fun getting. No, no, I was just fun. completely in the zone. Like, Go to the bathroom, exit the building, <laughs> <laughs> exit the building safely. Leave DC immediately. On. Yeah, I, I, I was really, just like in war mode, I, yeah, or like in like safety mode. Yeah. Really. Were, that was genuinely. Were yeah. you at all concerned for your safety? Because I was a little concerned for you watching wow. at home because I I know how emotional people can get, and yeah. the feeling that a large group of people who are all opposed to you, yeah. like and feel morally entitled to shout during your presentation to shut you down, like it's there's a small there's a small distance between there and like something physical right. happening. No, I I will say I I definitely felt that. I felt um, again I I knew like intellectually that the chance of anything physical happening was very small. Mm-hmm. But it's also larger than it ever is at any other moment yeah. of my life. So I was exiting the building. There were a bunch of people outside and I was just hoping not to be recognized, you know, because you know, what, what I will say is I expected there to be a lot more order. Mm. I expected, that, you know, this is a official government proceeding. I'm sure they have a system worked out in order to. There was no, it was complete chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Cohen did not even really try to keep the audience from interrupting <laughs> speakers. Uh, maybe made like two or three half-assed attempts to to bang the gavel here and there, but otherwise, I could tell right from the beginning that this was going to be really quite quite hostile. And I wasn't expecting that because I just I felt like it would be official, but it was just. It was just kind of anything goes. There was a moment where he did sort of step in at the conclusion of your remarks when the booing stopped. And he said something along the lines of, look, all of the speakers are entitled to respect, even if even if he was a little presumptuous. Oh, or not even. I don't even think he, he said, said little. He said chill, chill, because yeah. I actually put this in an article. <laughs> <laughs> he said chill, chill. He was a bit presumptive, but he has a right to speak. That's That's it. Dude. Wow. So first of all, poor use of the word presumptive. <laughs> you were going for presumptuous. You tried hard and you almost yeah, Don't let it, me upgrade him. But. So there's, there's a couple of things that I would like to say. Um, and then I want to go on to talk about sort of the substance of your testimony because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of interesting meat there. Mm-hmm. But actually, I'm going to get rid of the couple things and just say one thing. I'm so glad it was you and not me. I'm so glad you decided to do it. <laughs> um <laughs> And I, I, I kind of wish it had you, been you and yeah, not no, me. Not frankly. <laughs> you, you were so much better than I, I could have been in that room. I would have embarrassed myself. You think so? Be, absolutely. Why? Because it, for, if for no other reason, right? And I think intellectually you were fantastic. The, your, your poise was great. In a room like that, when people are being so nakedly disrespectful to me, mm. um, badger. especially badger. the folks Straight on up. stage, mm. I mean, it would have been so hard for me not to tell you how I feel about you mm. and your proceedings and your perspectives mm. and to tell you 
in a way that's as scathing mm. as I, in fact, I'm even flexing now wow. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I really am. I got to chill the hell out. Cause I'm not in the room, but I was, I was so furious for you, mm. but you were so chill and so cool. And in a circumstance like that, it does, you no good to, to explode. But that kind of casual disrespect is just, is contemptible. And it's even worse in a, in a context that is ostensibly serious and is ostensibly about these high ideals. We want to talk about this serious and important issue. And I will say that you approached it in that way. And for the most part, I think the conservatives who were involved in the conversation, you're not one of them, but the ones who were there, who was it who, who opened? I, I made a the ranking member, Mike Johnson. Uh, Mike Johnson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. His remarks, his opening remarks, I thought were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like they were very good. Like he cares deeply about the issue. He understands both perspectives very well, so far as I can tell. And he has a very reasonable position on these issues that is not very distant from my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that the distance between sort of the respectful way that he approached the issue and you approached the issue and the way, the disrespectful way that people responded to you for refusing to have the appropriate perspective on this for mm-hmm. someone who happens to be brown or black. I think it's telling. So I think there's a, yeah. a, a moment that most normal people don't have is that like high profile cameras are, are watching this, mm-hmm. a room full of people who have some power and maybe the cameras aren't rolling, but maybe it's just a, um, you know, a local rezoning meeting about your <laughs> about your elementary school uh, nearby. Uh, I, I, I went to one such meeting last night, and mm. I have uh, a couple of friends from the neighborhood who were there, and they must have gone through so many mental gyrations to prepare themselves to get their voice from not quavering because their perspective was against the dominant uh, ethos in the room, even at a small table, like people I know really well and are totally fine and chill about everything. Mm -hmm. Just talking to a low level education bureaucrat who disagrees with them, their voice is shaking and they, and they're worried about being actually in in a, almost a similar way being called a racist or something else because it's all public schools in New York and it's crazy. Um, (laughs) But like, that's tough. Like the, uh, for me, the, the, the best training for what you did is to go on Bill Maher to, to, uh, on, on, on a night that you are, you know, there was a school shooting yesterday or something Mm -hmm. when you're Mm -hmm. going to be the villain in that live audience, Mm -hmm. which Camille, you, I was uh, there for that with uh, you. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't have a particularly tough night then uh, the, the first couple of times that I went on is like that. Mm-hmm. And like, it's, it's live. There's mm-hmm. cameras. Your high school friends are going to see it and, and tell you about it. And for me, my high school friends are a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I don't talk to them. So it's kind of strange. Uh, and like, that's not easy to do. You have to, you find your own sense. You could develop your own sense of chill. If you are someone who ends up working a lot in media. And so you're never going to have a problem again for the rest of your well, life. Weirdly, gone through this. I would feel and do feel much more nervous asking a question from the audience at a speaking event hmm. than like I did taking a, taking a question. Oh no. Asking, asking a, a question, question. Okay. kind of cold. Like when I'm up there and you read the thing and you begin to feel comfortable after a few minutes after a while it, you settle in and it kind of feels normal. Yeah. So, but I, I in general, I, I felt I was kind of in survival mode and I get very like solemn and serious. And so I was just like, yeah, 
Yeah. So that that's what. But it's interesting that you you, you would have had that reaction. I mean, at, at least you know? at home, like that is how I felt. I was I, only. I probably I would have only had that upset. reaction watching you. In, in, in a weird way, I think my my friends are more exercised about it than I am. It's probably I, true. I'm getting yeah. all of these texts like, "Hang in there, man." <laughs> bizarrely, that actually sometimes makes me feel worse when I wake up to five texts that are like, oh, "Dude, it's it's brutal," but I, I hope you're hanging in there. It's like you know, I wasn't even thinking about it until I saw the five texts. Well, it's not it's not so much that it's brutal; it's just the volume mm-hmm. of it. Like we're all human beings, and even when people are are hitting you with the just the dumbest of criticisms like thoughtless you're stupid your ideas are fucking dumb you're the worst i hope someone punches you in the face all things that i've heard at different points you're fully Today. puerto rican yeah. <laughs> that, that's the one just with the most offensive thing that's that the one i ever really did not expect yeah i mean like there's no no like secret jose in the background no. of the family. actually my grandfather's name is Jose. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. So you are fully Puerto Rican. You admit it. <laughs> scumbag. It's on video. We Speaking have it on all video. the bus. Um, well, I, I want to talk about some of the criticism, but before we get there, I think it'd be, it's only appropriate uh, for you to, to perhaps give a little bit of the context for your perspective on the issue of reparations, because sure. I, I think we've alluded to it here. Yeah. Um, and anyone who's listened to the podcast is at least familiar with like my own perspective. Cause I know I've, said it a bunch um but your take on this is is distinct um and i I think it'd be useful if you were open to trying to summarize it sure so the main point i made is that uh reparations is a it's not going to solve the problems facing black people or any americans today if we're talking about mass incarceration, if we're talking about neighborhoods with very low clearance rates for murder that are you know, a terrible place to raise children, if we're talking about a broken public school system, reparations defined and, – and we can talk about how it's defined because mm-hmm. that's – a lot of the argument turns on that. Certainly as a paycheck for slavery or as a kind of race-conscious policy – it doesn't seem to me that it represents a robust solution to any of those problems, which are the problems we we have to be interested in solving. And moreover, what it does is the paradigm of reparations is transactional. So once the reparations are paid, you wash your hands of the issue that the reparations are paid for. Mm-hmm. But I think our obligation to African-Americans and to all Americans is not contingent on who your ancestors were or weren't. It's just, it's enough that you're an American citizen, that you deserve a safe neighborhood, a fair criminal justice system, uh, a a good schooling education experience, um, affordable healthcare. So, so to make it transactional is to make it contingent on something that once the reparations have been paid and now it's over where I, I believe the obligation has to be ongoing and unconditional. So that's my my biggest issue with the framing of, of reparations. And then I guess I have two uh, le- more minor issues that um, I also articulated. One being that uh, by definition, reparations, I guess they're kind of the same point, which is I am a descendant of slaves and First off, I don't need 
help. I happen to have been born into class-based privilege uh, with, you know, in a two-parent home with uh, parents with lots of books, lots of love, lots of opportunity. So the idea that resources would be allocated to me, but not to someone with the wrong ancestry, even if they're far more in need of assistance, seems like a moral mistake to me. It seems like we're so uh, reverent of the past that we are letting that blind us to what we're able to do in the present, to ha- how we should allocate scarce resources. And uh, secondly, and this is a this is a point where, which I didn't, you know, I, I'm I'm surprised how how much this has resonated with with some people, at least based on the feedback. Another way of saying the same point as I just did, which is that reparations reparations by definition only go to victims of something. Mm. So to give them to me is to define me as a victim of something where like there, there's no plausible construal of my life wherein I am a victim. I'm just, I'm literally speaking about myself, Coleman Hughes. That like for me to adopt a a self-definition of victimhood would be the quintessence of self-pity. So... But like Cheat here doesn't like your rap, so <laughs> <laughs> no, we haven't it's even got, gotten it's got that. Hurt. <laughs> Hurts a man. Um, I uh, uh, just to kind of uh, throw something in there. Uh, in addition, it strikes me as a missed opportunity with Tanahisi's uh, reparations article, which, like everything he writes, is too long. I didn't finish it, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, he talked a lot about like post-slavery stuff. He talked about like redlining neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Those are great things to talk about. Those are phenomenal things to talk about. Um, not even in terms of whether you think about reparations are a good idea or a bad idea, but the way to be reminded that a whole mess of public policies post-slavery, sometimes even post-Jim Crow um, and in places that weren't the Confederacy, uh, were designed explicitly in mind to screw over unfavored, disfavored uh, populations, Mm -hmm. whether black or Latino, Jewish. Um, Give an example uh, in Southern California, there was a series of these uh, uh, housing, uh, uh, single family housing unit codes or in like the local neighborhood uh, associations that would spring up and have a pretty strong power over who gets to come in and who doesn't. Like 1940s, right? A lot of this is in the Zoot Suit Riot era. And what you find um, is that they all went nuts saying, well, of course, we can't have Mexicans living nearby. So we have to have enough power to write the zoning things or at least have like a, a local community board of approval to make sure that the wrong people don't come into our neighborhood. Sometimes there are black people. Usually it was more Mexican and Chinese and whatnot. Like if you start working your way back through laws that still exist in some cases um, that were designed very explicitly to hurt people. They're still, if they're still in the books, let's go after those things. Mm-hmm. What happens if we remove this thing? What happens if we remove that thing? I mean, it's, um, and I know there's some contention over um, the popular theory that a lot of the drug laws originate with a, with a specific animus towards specific populations. Right. But I think it maps the disparity between crack and powder cocaine, <clears throat> for example. It, but it doesn't even remotely stop there. Uh, and it's and it's curious to me that people decide not to. 
go after some of those. Mm-hmm. All uh, occupational licensing back from the the mass, not the masterpiece, but the uh, the nineteen uh, <laughs> the eighteen nineties uh, bake shop thing in in uh, New York, the famous case, yeah, um, that became Lochner, right? <clears throat> um, was about people trying to screw over immigrant Jewish uh, bakers because they were working too long. So we have to make sure that your hours are only this long. It was totally racist by by nature, excluding uh, outlawing German newspapers. Totally like uh-huh. jingoistic. So how about identifying those things, finding them, identi- you know, admitting that they were uh, uh, collectivist, collectivist and, uh, and demonizing populations by nature um, and either rolling them back or just having a deep little thought of like, hey, you know what? Minimum wage laws were adopted many – very explicitly racist, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're supporting them now – Work through that and let's talk about that. But that's not the way it went, despite the fact that the, the, the big kickoff of reparations was an article that did suggest a lot of those things that we should all be thinking of, that many of them still exist or the legacies of them still exist in the world. Instead, it's like, let's make the federal government a check writing machine. And your position on that is going to signal where your virtue is. And I think it's just a remarkable lost opportunity and a bad way of looking at, as you rightly point out, like this is a, a never ending progression. Right. This is this this isn't a story where you have the one that you either press the red button and it goes away and, <laughs> and we're cool. Uh, I'm not. No, it's never going to work like that. So, yeah. Anyways. Uh, attention in Ta-Nehisi Coates's piece and in his remarks is he continually reminds people how there are still living victims of structural racism of mm-hmm. Jim Crow, which is completely true. And a point that I also made, mm-hmm. which is to say I would and do support reparations to people who were directly harmed, like my grandparents, by being made to live as second-class citizens, right? But when he all when he keeps on emphasizing, as 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 he should, that there are still living victims, why should that matter on his view, right? If we're re- if reparations for slavery really is a a, a morally sound um, uh, position, then it sh- actually shouldn't matter whether there are living victims of of uh jim crow right like even if there weren't the case should be just as sound on his view but i think the fact that he has to emphasize that there are still living uh victims of jim crow in order to make his case more more salient i think it shows that clearly it kind of admits that there is a difference between someone directly harmed and their grandchild which is a point that i try to make i don't feel comfortable collecting on a debt that is that is really owed to my grandfather whether or not that debt has been paid or my great 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 grandfather right the, the fact that that debt should have been paid and wasn't which is a huge injustice doesn't imply to me that I get to collect on that the the phrase that I've used in this context a couple of times is moral alchemy whereby guilt is, is transmuted through time to people who were not party to these crimes. If you live in the United States circa 2019, you are benefiting from all of the horrible things that were done to black people in the past. And you are essentially a party to the most awful things that the United States has done. And similarly, if you happen to be the descendant of Africans who were enslaved in the United States, you took all of the lashes and you picked all of the cotton and you are entitled to all of the remuneration. And both aspects of that have always struck me as morally hollow and flawed. And that's 
it's probably the the beginning of my own um, uh, objection to the reparations argument. But I think it's it's worth focusing for a moment on the arguments that were made mm-hmm. in favor of reparations by um, Coates and by others, mm-hmm. and the themes that that struck me as like the most common: the fact that they would constantly allude to like facing our history honestly and completely. Mm-hmm. Like we're not really being honest about who we are if we don't put slavery. Um, and the awfulness that happened to black people. And of course, some sort of compensation for that awfulness today. Um, if we don't put that at the forefront, then we're not being honest. Um, and that we need to make people whole. Um, this policy could potentially make people whole. And both of those things seem just flagrantly wrong to me. Um, the, the fact is that we cannot make dead people who were injured whole. And we can't necessarily make their their descendants who are alive today who view themselves as a party to those injuries whole like they may never in fact be satisfied and the inequalities that they imagine are all a result of slavery and discrimination all of them that's what tanisi said on a number of occasions and various other people um the the likelihood that they would all go away if there was a significantly large baby bond program is just absurd some of those disparities seem to have causes that are incredibly complex and are not narrowly a consequence of slavery. I, I don't understand how slavery results in differential rates of unwed parentage. I don't get it. I don't get how slavery necessarily requires an outcome where there is a much higher rate of homicide in particular communities. I don't get that. So one, one point that I made is if you look at the timeline of many of the worst problems, whether it's the homicide rate, single parent homes, or mass incarceration, mass incarceration started in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Jim Crow could have ended. And if, if people had made different decisions, we would not have mass incarceration. And so it was proportionate. That, mass incarceration was proportionate. You were locking to, up a lot of white people yeah. and a lot of black people, yes, that, which that is, is true. bizarre that you would do that if you are pursuing a racist policy to injure black people. That, but also just the idea that we should, we should view mass incarceration, which is a huge problem, of course, through the lens of slavery and Jim Crow, the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. It actually takes away responsibility from the politicians who are responsible for mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. If we blame it on the past, it's a way of actually shirking responsibility for, pro- for, for policy decisions that have been made in the past few decades. Um, That's my favorite uh, moment of the entire, of the entire presentation. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, what, one point, one point I, another point I made, which is similar, is that the, the idea that we haven't studied our, we don't know our history. And I made the point that Slavery is roughly 10,000 years old, as old as civilization itself has been practiced on every continent in almost every civilization that Mm -hmm. you could name. Much of that slavery has been domestic rather than plantation slavery like we had here. But much of it has also been plantation slavery. I essentially said that there is no example of slavery from the past 10,000 years that has been more studied than American slavery from the 17th century to the 19th century. And ta agreed on that point, but I think he's, he ascribed it to the fact that slavery, that A, we have so many colleges <laughs> in America, which is probably part of the Partly reason. Partly true, sure. Um, but, and, and B, that uh, you know the enormity of slavery here, the, the degree of the crime, the cruelty of it, 
is such that it would justify a disproportionate amount of study. A historical. That's a historical. I mean, like if you look at the the mortality rate of slavery in Jamaica, mm-hmm. Camille. Yeah, I'm familiar. Um, it's higher than it was here. Much higher than it was here. More brutal. I mean, most of Slavery's the slaves brutal everywhere, yeah. obviously, but there are degrees of brutality, and it's. I know, guess some of the, the uh, brutality American, that that people were pointing to is just the actual lethality of the Civil War, which uh, uh, right our well, our ending of slavery was a little bit more bloody than but that's that's uh, not what Ta-Nehisi was referring yeah. to. I think he he was insinuating, as I think most of the people in that room probably would, that. American slavery was this uniquely deplorable institution and that, that was, nothing nothing has ever been as bad and no people has ever suffered as much. In fact, I, I remember um, a, a moment in her opening remarks where uh, where Sheila Jackson Lee said only this group um, has been oppressed in this particular way, has been enslaved because there are all sorts of brown people who have suffered in America, all sorts of people who are looked different, who aren't white, who've suffered, but only this group has been enslaved in this particular way. And um, I know one of the moments that uh, Ta-Nehisi had, which it seems like it's one of those moments that should have been like a stand and applause line is where he talked about the fact that you know, when we talk about our history, like we have to acknowledge that George Washington and all these other people, they were slaveholders. Like slavery was absolutely vital to the development of this nation. And look, there's an argument to be made there, but there are counterpoints. And the counterpoints include the fact that most of the slaves that were brought across the Atlantic to the Americas went to South America. That There were far more slaves there than there were in the United States. And they aren't nearly as wealthy as the United States is. And I suspect that they had the same sort of correlations where the people in power had lots and lots of slaves. Um, it's also the case that there were serfs in Russia who were suffering under conditions that were in some cases as brutal and in other cases worse by res- with respect to certain kinds of conditions and outcomes you might look at, like uh, mortality rates, um, the, the sort of uh, welfare that they had in terms of the kind of diets that they were getting based on some of the research that I've looked at. But they had pretty deplorable conditions as well. And again, they didn't become the economic superpower that the United States did, which to me suggests that the reason why the United States is as successful as it is, is perhaps not because they had slave labor. There's been a bunch of there's something else going on. There's been a bunch of recent popular books and academic books that have been uh, popularizing that notion, which you see right. tossed around King in cetera. King Cotton, especially. Yeah. Um, and I commend to people uh, an omnibus review, but I think it's mostly a focus on King Cotton, uh, that reason ran by Deirdre McCloskey, the great economic historian mm-hmm. um, uh, and, uh, and uh, writer, philosopher, um, that was convincing to me as a layman who doesn't study this at all um, that people are way overstepping their bounds of um, – I mean, we, we get to a sort of a transitive property of um, America is successful. America had all this slavery. Um, uh, therefore, you know, the slavery was, a, a, was an overwhelmingly large cause of that success, which then begat the American empire, which then means that this horrifying crime – has more uh, importance and that people are in denial about how that created the very wealth that they enjoyed now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, – and, and from there, then you get to all kinds of different places. Um, but I think the the root of you know X percentage of the prosperity of the country was based on that um, is very contestable. Yeah. I think slavery and discrimination I've always embraced – uh, always for a very long time, I've embraced uh, the Baldwin-esque 
insight that that those things are a cancer and that they they harm the country. They harm our polity. They make all of us worse off. And I think the country as a whole would have almost certainly been better off had it always employed people um, and not ever enslaved people, um, had it never participated in the triangle trade of humans, like we would have been better off um, had we never fought a civil war. We would have been better off nationally. Um, but again, I'm, I'm trying to recast history here and I can't know. Free but people. In the same respect, neither can they. Free yes. people everywhere that there has been a, um, a liberation from tyranny, either internally or, or, or uh, however you want to define it, people produce more. The place becomes wealthier. Everyone gets better, right? Like after the end of the Cold War, there's a lot of captive peoples in the Cold War um, and they had their own like – not reparations there, but like restitution. What do you do about the uh, massive amounts of property that had been expro- appropriated by right, communist right. The states? And it's a very tricky thing. And also, what do you do about the people who ran the regimes and who were part of the secret police? You know, there's all these really uh, great books uh, and and uh, and details about that very thorny question. It's much more difficult when you're going back uh, 160 years uh, uh, to be sure. Um, but as soon as you let people not be captive or even just under a really heavy thumb, even if they have their own semi-autonomy, what do they do? They, they make themselves rich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just what happens. I, there, I, I don't know of an example of like, God, we figured out the way to get rich for everybody. Let's make a lot of slaves <laughs> over here. It's like, I'm not. This generally I mean, hasn't worked. Granted, I, I, I maybe I don't know. But uh, it, yeah. it it doesn't it, it doesn't really pass a quick you know smell. Yeah, I like the you know the Aztecs had slaves, but very little wealth. Mm-hmm. If we're trying to identify the variable that changed in during the Industrial Revolution that kicked off this massive swelling of wealth in the developed world, if we're trying to identify the common variables in places like Japan and Singapore that have become wealthy very quickly. Slavery is not the common variable. It's mm-hmm. slavery has been a constant, you know, more or less for ten thousand years in various forms. So, I don't think forced labor in itself is at all the main reason why America is wealthy. But I, I, I also I don't want to dodge um, what I think is the best argument for reparations and the the reason Tanahasi's uh, essay, which I, I have to say, regardless of my uh, disagreement with him. He really is a beautiful writer in Sometimes. terms of prose, I think. <laughs> Sometimes. But, um, the, the, the argument that if not for slavery and especially Jim Crow and especially redlining, black people would have far more wealth hmm. uh, and you know, income is very different than wealth. The income gap is, is large but not that large. Uh, the wealth gap is 10 to 1 or more depending on how you measure it. Mm-hmm. And wealth is important in a way that income isn't because you can hand it down to your kids. It's a safety net in times of emergency that we all go through in life. So white people have had this kind of safety net that they can fall back on and black people have been sort of flying without the net. Um, So this, you know, my problem with this argument is uh, that it's, it assumes that if not for structural racism, if not for slavery and Jim Crow, what we would see in America is a roughly equal amount of wealth between groups. Mm-hmm. But that that assumption is among the least solid things that you can say, uh, you know, having 
studied multi-ethnic societies in general, you literally, I, I would challenge anyone to find one multi-ethnic society, <laughs> even even when people are all of the same race, but are different ethnicities or, or different cultures, where outcomes have been substantially similar along income, wealth, or incarceration lines. Right? I, I gave the example of the the twenty one cent on the dollar household income gap between white Americans of Russian descent and white Americans of French descent. If that were the income gap between blacks and whites, you would be hearing about it every few weeks, mm-hmm. in, in you know, and it would be reflexively descri- uh, ascribed to some kind of structural discrimination. But because it's within two different you know ethnicities of white people, it's just. No one loses sleep over it. And the truth is disparities of that kind are the norm, not the exception. And I could give any number of examples. There's one study from the early 2000s that compared wealth in Jewish American households versus conservative Protestant households. And there was a a six to one gap Mm. precisely in in the direction that a, a kind of stereotype of Jewish wealth would predict. There's no plausible reading of U.S. history where Jews have gotten a leg up from the government, you know, like that. <laughs> that disparities of that of that sort are normal in societies because groups are very different. They have different everything from the average age of a group. You know, the average black person is ten years younger than the average white person. So if you're comparing wealth or income, you're comparing thirty three year olds to forty three year olds. Right from the start, it's a comparison that doesn't make sense. But there are also immeasurable things that differ between groups like values, the the sorts of occupations you choose to go into that, that are seen as prestigious in your culture, the degree to which you, uh, you know, the value of education is hammered into your head, um, various kinds of things, the, everything from where you live, right? Like uh, $100 in a city doesn't buy the same thing as $100 in a country. Different groups don't live in the same areas, don't have the same migration patterns or histories or cultures. So the idea that you would nevertheless expect equal outcomes is among the the, the least supportable claims you could you can make. So all, all that said, I, I do think it's it's obviously true that slavery and Jim Crow are part of the reason for the wealth gap. What part? I don't know. Right. But with 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 a with a historical uh uh um, phenomenon with a phenomenon that complicated with so many different causes, it is it it's it's completely lazy uh, to ascribe it completely or even mostly to slavery and discrimination. Mm-hmm. I think, from a historical standpoint, it is easy to understand how Americans have developed the fetish that we have when it comes to using race to understand every sort of complicated social outcome that we see that we don't like. The only sorts of disparities that we see are between like blacks and whites because they're stark and so many of them are persistent. And there is that historical context that we can use to explain all of these things. It's absolutely right um, that it's lazy to stop there when there is so much else that could be uncovered if we were willing to ask a couple more questions or challenge a few more of our assumptions. I also think that there is a um, a bad habit of mind that's happening, particularly on um, the kind of blue state uh, left. You see this in legalizing marijuana debates of all mm. things, right? Uh, and you see it in New York, for example, they've almost legalized it and then they didn't. Uh, and one of the 
rhetorical sl- things that you'll see AOC has done this. Others will too. It's like, well, we can legalize uh, marijuana, but we have to make sure that um, uh, instead of saying uh, something I would uh, agree with more of like, hey, look, are there people in jail for this thing that you're legalizing in our state and our let's get them out of jail? Okay, yeah, uh, Cory Booker and other people have said, great, I think that that's step one. Mm. But it's more, let's make sure that the people making money off of this are X percent minorities or people who have been who suffered disproportionately from mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And several New York lawmakers who, in theory, supported marijuana legalization, voted against the bill on those very reasons. on those grounds. And that, to me, is so uh, bass backwards. <clears throat> it's inserting the politician in the way of of saying we have to direct where the profit will go. We have to manage right. this kind of retributive. Did I get that right? That's, I don't want to yeah. get on your wrong side of your presumptiveness <laughs> <laughs> over here. Uh, <laughs> it's also it's also holding people. <laughs> it's holding in a way. It's holding people who are in prison for marijuana hostage. hostage. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. In, in order to push an economic, like a race conscious agenda, that it's not even clear whether that will be good. Generally, it, it probably won't. Mm. I mean, there's. Uh, I don't know enough about the um, the practice of um, kind of uh, set asides for minority and women owned businesses uh, in local government contracts. A very good for friend example. who just uh, testified before Congress about the uh, the wonders of the eight A program. Oh, really? Yeah, he happens to be a, a first generation American who's taking advantage of that program. That, him. he's a so spectacular human. Um, the thing he's with doing very well for himself, but it's I think the program is gross. It creates shell companies much. and arbitrage yeah, up yuck. the wazoo. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. The it's number bullshit. one problem with set aside programs has been white people trying to take advantage of it in order to get a leg up. Mm. And like like and and they they it's so difficult to tell who is who because you're married say you're a white guy married to a Hispanic woman and you set it up in her name but you're really running it and then you get all these lucrative government contracts that are supposed to be going to minorities mm-hmm. but obviously if there's anything we've learned from the SAT scandal, it is that there is no system that people will not gain. They will find a way. They will find a way. There's a guy right now who is, I think, suing Seattle and the federal government because he has 4% black. He's, he's <laughs> whatever that means. What the hell means. is that? <laughs> we get it. He did it. He did it like a take home DNA test and yeah. he's 4% black and applied for a set aside program for minorities for yeah. his small business. You should get it. One drop rule. Uh, One drop rule. We know how that works. I think he's doing it to make a point, but the the, the point has been made by like the hundreds or more people who who have been trying to take advantage of this. And like just if you make – there's no way that a central planning authority – not to go full Hayek on this stuff, but like there's there's no way that it's going to be – as robust and as smart as if you just like pull the shit out of the way that's holding people back and mm-hmm. and and let people get after it without fear of being thrown in jail or without being uh, micromanaged constantly by the state. I mean, I had mentioned occupational licensing. Um, you know th- that hits tiny entrepreneurs. Uh, the most. So, who are those people? They tend to be disproportionately women. They tend to be disproportionately immigrants. You know, uh, all these uh, dumb uh, uh, sex trafficking panic laws that are 
happening everywhere. Um, who gets hit? It's the Vietnamese mm-hmm. or Chinese nail salon owner every time or massage parlor owner or, uh, you know, the Mexican uh, car washers have to deal with the $15 minimum wage. That if you're if you if you're regulating yourself like this, you were disproportionately going to affect non-white populations everywhere, every time. Um, and yet people choose not to take that kind of uh, idea. And instead, like, how can we manage the productive part of the economy to produce these results that are like, get the fuck out of the way. That's a, that's a, that's a way that you could fucking manage this. Well, we, we've been going for a while and I, I thought we were going to talk about other stuff, but I'm, I am content to only talk about this stuff. And Colvin, I I wanted to ask you something that I'd I'd sort of teased for, for you via text before we got into the room with respect to the criticism, the, the takedowns of yourself that have been published subsequent to your appearing uh, on Capitol Hill. Um, as Matt alluded to, some folks said you were too young to be in that in that room. Again, you didn't have the credentials. Obviously true. That <laughs> um, you didn't have the credentials. You couldn't do it. Um, I wonder how much of that coverage you've been paying attention to. And I wonder if there is anything salient in any of the critiques of your presentation that you've sort of thought more about since mm. uh, your participation in there. No, I mean, I've been paying attention to my Twitter mentions. And, <laughs> <laughs> or not today, but yesterday. Uh-huh. I spent a good like four hours. With, it felt like 20 minutes just like, refreshing (laughs) 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 completely masochistic but um no i mean almost all half of what i was seeing was uh the claim that i'm not actually an african uh, i'm not actually Mm african-american or i'm not actually an american descended of of slavery ados Mm -hmm. that that i was surprised yeah i was really surprised by by how much of what i was getting was from that community um, so to the point where I, I felt so silly doing this, but I, I posted a link to the records that Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's plantation has of my grandfather and our, our lineage. I felt silly even playing the game, but there was such an easy way. <laughs> it was like showing your long form birth certificate. Right. It's like, because it's public record, I felt like this will like, it's just a fact it's right there. And it's mm-hmm. a fact but it didn't stop it. And I really wasn't expecting that. I was expecting to be called a coon and an uncle Tom and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And there was some of that. Because it's like Wednesday. Yeah, <laughs> but um, no, I, I didn't, I haven't yet seen, and I've been kind of hoping to see a, a substantial critique yeah. of what I said, because I think, I mean, I guess John McWhorter and Cornell West were on Don Lemon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw that clip. And, um, you know, McWhorter had some really interesting thoughts, as he almost always does, mm-hmm. where he, he was saying he might be able to get behind reparations and was sort of struggling with it in real time if it would if it would really be recognized as the other shoe dropping, yeah. as he would say, yeah. as something significant. If we could agree beforehand, we're going to do reparations and on the condition that it's really seen as something important. It's not dismissed like Black History Month or affirmative action as like not really je- like it's Yeah, I mean they gave us the shortest really... month of the year, Coleman. Exactly. Obviously. Exactly. Obviously. Of course the history of how we got there is totally different, but whatever. But if it's really recognized as as a mea culpa that that 
is meaningful. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was saying he would support it, but he doubts that it will. I also doubt that it will. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Camille, do you get the uh, hashtag ADOS people coming after you? Because they I, really should. I've only had it a few times, um, actually under somewhat similar circumstances in that I was talking about reparations on television. Um, and in this particular case, I was on CNN and I was actually supposed to be on with Sandy Darity, who is a economics professor at Duke university. He did that, that very famous often talked about study uh, with respect to the disparities in wealth uh, between blacks and Boston, uh, blacks and whites in Boston. Um, and is also the, the, Perhaps the principal champion, if not the originator of this notion of baby bonds, which is mm-hmm. one iteration of how the a reparations scheme might be designed. Um, and Sandy and I ended up sort of going back and forth on Twitter a little bit. And I was respectful. I, I want to talk to Sandy. I actually invited him on the podcast. He didn't necessarily accept the invitation. And sometimes I invite people and they accept and I don't follow up because I got other things going on. But oh, I really? We I promise I will. That. I will. Um, and they they came out of the woodwork and were just going in on me. And one of them, and this is actually, this happens very frequently, um, where they say, well, you're one of those like first generation Americans. You don't get the money anyways. So you don't get an opinion. You don't get to say anything <laughs> about whether or not we could take it. Um, it's always that and you don't speak for us. when. One, I always make it a point to never try and speak for you. <laughs> I speak on behalf of Camille and Coleman. If I was going to offer any criticism whatsoever of your very stellar presentation, uh-huh. it would be, and you already know what it is, whenever someone talks about you know black people as a community, what we need— mm. I just, it makes me cringe. Let him decide. I, I, he's, to he's allowed. He's allowed. He's allowed. I'm just having a disagreement with my friend <laughs> mm-hmm. in the room. Yeah, I'm allowed. I find, I find that both we and they strike me as wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we, they, us, all of it is so like. So every time I write uh, they, I cringe. And every time I write, write we, I cringe. And by the time I've run out of cringeworthy pronouns, there's nothing left. Mm-hmm. But, um, but they don't object. They don't object actually, to it in general. They only object to it when you do it. But they wouldn't have objected to any of the specific statements that I made that I started with. We that's the other but, part of this. That's so amazing. You endorse a more limited version of reparations. Yeah. You endorsed it during your presentation. You talk about all of the fundamental issues that you're concerned about with respect to these disparities in the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. with respect to wealth, and that you express the same kind of concern. You're only skeptical about whether or not the approach works. Mm-hmm. And I find myself always shocked by how often I'm in a position like that mm-hmm. where I agree with you on the objective. Like I want the same thing you do. But we disagree fundamentally on the means and it just becomes an apocalyptic conflict because I'm not on board with that portion of the agenda. Did you did you have that sense? Were you aware of that in the moment or are you aware of it all the time? Perhaps I, I was definitely aware of it in the moment. And I think that's one of the probably the main reason why I got so much more hate than Burgess Owens, who is the other Mm -hmm. Uh, person testifying against the motion, he more or less dismissed the entire concept of reparations from a kind of spiritual bootstrapping sentiment. Uh, I, know, I know he's religious as well. Also, liberals are evil. So. Yeah. Also, the Democratic Party, he yeah. he says, is 
essentially should be understood as the party of slavery. Mm-hmm. The Republican Party should be understood as the party of Lincoln. They're the real racists. Right, right. The, plant, uh, the Democrat plantation. How many, right, how many right. times All did they invoke Robert Byrd? That's <laughs> <laughs> used the Byrd rule. You have to mention Robert Byrd. <laughs> yeah. So all, all of these things I, I think are really ahistorical things to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but he ended up getting much less hate, I think, than I did, perhaps because he's older. But I think also because I was the near enemy. Mm-hmm. He yeah. was kind of the far enemy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the near enemy, I think, gets under your skin more because they understand half of your point of view mm-hmm. and agree with it, perhaps. And the fact that they agree with it marks them as not insane. Mm-hmm or not obviously insane right, and right. therefore easy to dismiss, you have to, yeah. then it gets under your skin more. Yeah. And that's what I think, you know, when, after my, my testimony, which I obviously I thought was reasonable almost by definition, mm-hmm. somebody got up. I don't know if you could, you could see this in the video, but somebody got up and said, I, I literally cannot hear this. Yeah. And slowly walked out of the room. I right? saw that. Yeah. I don't know how many hours this, this person traveled to come to this three and a half hour testimony, but mm-hmm. after an hour gets up, makes a scene mm-hmm. and leaves the room and we're all waiting for him to leave. And he's just saying, I can't listen to this. Yeah. I literally, I cannot hear this it's too much. The fact that you disagree with me in a and subtle like, nuanced way, I endorse reparations for, for certain people. Mm-hmm. And it's so upsetting that you get up in the middle of this massive event that you've been privileged enough to get into and leave. <laughs> <laughs> like what? It's like leaving 30 minutes into Titanic or something. I don't yeah, well, there, were, there were hundreds of people trying to get into a room that fit a yeah. hundred people. Yeah. Mm. Can I ask a question to, to the political experts who've been doing this stuff longer than I have? Has there ever been another circumstance where members of Congress were holding a hearing for a program that would have enriched them personally, where you sponsor a oh. bill? And I don't, I'm not trying to undermine the bill. In Corporate way, tax cuts, but man. I am saying, but I am saying it's it's kind of a weird dynamic to be Sheila and to be. Is it is it rude for me to do that? Yep, that's fine. Uh, she was rude to Coleman, so I'm going to do it. No, I mean it's Camille been, doing that. There's been reparations uh, in the past to uh, people who are, were on the internment end of the Japanese internment camps. I presume mm-hmm. the. Uh, the WAPs and the Krauts also got a bit of reparation. <laughs> to be. By the way, by the way, people will say black people never got reparations. All black people never got reparations, but for certain harms, uh, for example, the Tuskegee experiments, mm. the black men whose syphilis was left uncured intentionally Jesus. as part of an experiment, which is they, they were paid reparations or their immediate family members. Mm-hmm. And I think the Filipino uh, uh, Americans uh, were also um, in uh, uh, based in L.A. And so I presume as part of that, you know, that uh, Senator Daniel Inouye, Inouye was, mm-hmm. was probably, uh, although, you know, he was, a, he, uh, he was an internment uh, I believe he was. Uh, camp guy. So in theory, it could have happened in the past and in a direct way. And you know what? I'm totally fine with that. Can I ask uh, another thing, Coleman? And Candace Owens in particular, I don't really like to talk about. I'm not coming for Candace. I don't think she's a great Satan that needs to be destroyed. I do oftentimes she's a great Satan think who doesn't that she's destroyed. I do oftentimes find her to be like a figure of fun rather than a serious person. But people who are not particularly sophisticated in terms of their analysis of folks that they disagree with will oftentimes like think that me and Candace sort of mm-hmm. play for the same team. And I suspect 
oftentimes make the same presumption about you, Coleman. And one of the things that I thought about when you were like, oh, I'm going to go do this was like, damn, Candace just did it. It's going to, they're going to like look at you and it's Candace. Like, mm. They won't, they won't differentiate between the two of you mm-hmm. and it won't matter that you're better. And it won't matter that what you're saying is more substantive and that you're more thoughtful and that there are data points that you're alluding to here and that you're not a Trumpist. They'll just make all of the presumptions and try to destroy you anyways. But I wonder if you have thoughts on the ways in which your perspective is different from that of the, to the extent this is a thing, conventional black MAGA conservative. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, right off the bat, there's religion. I'm an atheist, and um, much of the traditional, I mean, this isn't quite the MAGA black conservative, Mm -hmm. but much of traditional black conservatism, at least there's one large contingent that is conservative largely for social and religious reasons. Mm -hmm. That is something I've never been a part of, never even... I suppose I can understand in the abstract how religion, how a person could be religious, of course, but that's something I I, I don't identify with in the least. Um, In terms of uh, President Trump, I voted for Hillary and would do it again. I think (laughs) Trump is – I really voted against Trump more than I did for Hillary. But it seems to me that if you're someone who can't find anything wrong with Donald Trump – (laughs) then you're you're just not operating in the realm of reason Uh like and candace owens i you know perhaps the only thing i've ever heard her say somewhat critical of trump is that i I think she said this when he passed the first step act Mm. which reduced mandatory minimums uh, it was basically everything you would want if you read the new jim crow and were compelled by it Mm -hmm. trump past this it was bipartisan great moment that nobody ever talks about i think Mm -hmm. candace felt that i think i could be getting this wrong but i I think she was critical of that Mm. um which so like if the only thing you can (laughs) criticize trump on is the like the one thing he gets right yeah i don't i don't pay enough attention to know what she said listen so she's i mean she said if she says richard spencer is a democratic plant Mm. without any irony like mm-hmm. is being paid by the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Complete conspiracy theory. The parties never switched in terms of appe- trying to appeal to the Republican Party, trying to appeal to Southern voters rather than um, uh, a blacks, which completely happened in the 50s and 60s. So she has a conspiratorial or at minimum a very, very non-mainstream take on American political history that I've never really heard her support. Um, she tweeted just a few days ago that if you burn the flag you should not not that you should go to jail but you should be kicked out of the country (laughs) as she was responding to a recently announced constitutional amendment bill Mm. that actually would um criminalize flag burning and she trump endorsed it and she went even further she went even i remember seeing her online talking about free speech the other day and how vital it is Mm -hmm. complete hypocrisy i don't know why at some point she wanted jeff bezos to be locked up (laughs) she tweeted that yeah i remember her saying that he was very easy evil on uh, i believe she was on infowars that particular day it might have been the same day that she she published her video how to escape the democrat plantation which yeah yeah so, which I, I find to be completely over the top and unhelpful mm-hmm. 
I've got, a, I've got one clarification here, though. I can't find the more, most recent one, but as late as late 2018, Candace appeared to have been supporting the First Step Act. Okay, okay. okay. So maybe, maybe wrong there. So but, good. But it, it, sorry, it just proves my point. Mm-hmm. She literally cannot criticize the president on anything he does, no matter how crazy. Mm-hmm. Yes. And she goes one step further sometimes. So that, that it seems to me that she's just really not operating in the realm of reason. And if you can't tell the difference between Candace and me, then I think you're just not trying you're hard not paying enough. attention. You're not, you're, you're not, not paying attention to what anyone is, to what it's anyone an extraordinarily is shallow comparison. Yeah. Although yeah. Camille's phrasing of that or posing of that question made me think that if the two of you guys went to Washington, then you could like be the diamond and silk. No. <laughs> <laughs> Who now appear with Steve King. I'm not going to. I'll be the one that doesn't say anything. I'll be, I'll be the one that just just moves her head. Slapping. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes. MAGA. That would be me. I Which one is that? Is that diamond Camille's or silk? head swivel that many times in the nine years I've known. I, I'm actually like I'm repressing the urge to keep doing it. It's weird. It's weird. It's like muscle memory. Oh my God! Diamond and silk. We would, we would do pretty well. There, we could keep going like all damn day, um, but we should we should wrap it in not too long. And I don't. I'm not saying that so that we can go another 45 minutes. People think it's like a <laughs> you, you guys do that all the time. <laughs> but I'm, do that I don't all the time. I'm, I'm being genuine. I, I we just love keep it going. As a um, but um, I wanted to ask about the uh, the the line of attack that we haven't mentioned yet, but the fact that you are. A horrible SoundCloud rapper. Mm-hmm. Yes. You are a miserable, <laughs> terrible person who says bad words in your rap music. And corrupts the youth. And um, Bill O'Reilly is very angry about this. <laughs> As is Jeet here. <laughs> Which... <laughs> Somebody somebody made the comment that like the whole the whole left became Archie Bunker. <laughs> <laughs> like if you had asked them before, are you anti hip hop? They would have been like, what? what? Yeah. Well, you don't understand. The moment I'm a SoundCloud rapper, they're like, oh my God, he's a SoundCloud rapper. How disgusting. (laughs) The fake fake controversy about AOC dancing. Yeah, she's dancing. Nobody's actually really mad at her. Yeah, nobody cares about that. Nobody cares about it. But if Coleman is rapping. Yeah, they were mad about the rapping. If Coleman's rapping. (laughs) See? See? It was Franklin Leonard, right, who got that ball rolling. That scumbag is. I don't know who that is. Uh, We follow each other on Twitter. Oh, really? Could you send him a direct message and tell him I said that he's a dope again? He's a screenwriter, right? I think he heard all the messages that you were sending. By the way, I might as well send all of your fans to my album is called my dick works fine drops 11 tracks all gold yeah um wow only yeah. gold not platinum some not of them are platinum some of them are platinum most yeah. of them are gold and uh i've gotten like four or five people come up to me today and they're like i saw your album someone posted your album to dunk on you and then i listened to it and it wasn't that bad it was pretty good <laughs> i had a uh, i had a slack conversation with a uh, uh millennial staffer at uh-huh. a reason uh about the uh high quality dude, I, it wasn't me saying it dude just, i i have I told I, I mean i like I, that song fake though it was, it was good thanks that's yeah, everyone's if, favorite. if i'd known that it was like an expose to post the fact that coleman raps i would have done it a long time ago so yeah. i could have gotten the exclusive because i've known for a while but when I listened to it for the first time, I was so astonished that it was actually good, like really good. 
Because I expect people who rap and post it to SoundCloud on their own to just be terrible. Yeah. Or, or just if, friends if, which if is a Even if it's regarded as good, I expect yeah. it to be Gucci Gang. Right. Which, Matt, I know you don't appreciate it. I don't understand what language you're speaking. <laughs> but it is, it is evidence of the decline of Western civilization okay. that Lil Pump, right, <laughs> is a popular and successful pop artist evidence of the decline it's just really bad am i wrong am i wrong gucci gang 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 my bitch love do cocaine fuck so bad poetry camille no it's not it's the worst thing you know what i can appreciate i can appreciate migos i do and i love young thug i think young thug is a genius i've been talking about that here for a very long time i do that shit is bad. It's bad. It is all bad. Little Z- little Zans and all the rest. It's bad. And I don't even know what else is coming out. I've stopped listening to new music oh, because oh. I'm an old man and it's over. How old, you know? How old are you now? Because I have a theory about that. You might be uh, at the age that is uh, that when my this happens. Theory. Thirty, thirty-eight. I'll be thirty-nine this Actually, year. Actually, it should have happened a couple. I'll years talk about some already. new music that's oh. coming out. My friend Toby, who's in the room, hey. aka mm-hmm. Chuku, has a great album coming out called the Process EP. Mm. He's, if you like my shit, his shit is better. Okay. All right. But well, we got the Frank, process. Frank, Frank, Franklin Leonard's uh, maybe douchiest of all the, the threaded tweets where he was obsessing over Coleman's uh, burgeoning <laughs> music career. Uh, someone write a reverse Bullworth about a SoundCloud rapper who exploits conservative movement, affirmative action to promote his music. That's the other thing. Wow. That's like, the other it's thing. It's a conspiracy here, clearly. The, 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 the other thing that I, the other thing that I love Dick is Frank. this narrative about how Boris, the, easy, the easy route to success in politics is to be a black conservative. Mm-hmm. And the easy route to sort of success and popularity in general is to be a black person who sells out your own people and mm-hmm. takes the wrong positions on things. There are lots of black conservatives. There are more black progressives, but there are lots of prominent black conservatives. I don't know that, that making a name for yourself in that space is so damn easy, but I'll go further. Like Coleman, you're not a conservative. (laughs) (laughs) You do identify as black, but you're not a conservative and your politics for anyone who wants to call you as much that it's, complicated and Mm -hmm. confusing the description just doesn't hold and the notion that you are being propped up that people are taking advantage of you Mm -hmm. as i saw someone who is ostensibly a smart person saying on the internet was actually kind of in your defense he was Mm -hmm. he was suggesting that oh you know he's young and he's being taken advantage of Mm -hmm. but that uh that that defense will wear uh, thin jeffrey Sachs. yeah Yeah, i was not going to say his name Mm -hmm. because it was yeah it was that's how, not no, a that was compliment. De- Jeffrey Sachs said that? Yeah. yeah. How oh, do wow. you... Uh, that's really disappointing. He's a smart dude. He, Ostensibly wow, a smart it's, guy? it's so interesting that people don't take the Occam's razor, uh, razor explanation of who I am. I'm no bosses, no sponsors. You know, I'm always... When someone calls me a grifter, there's a petty part of me that just wants to post the paltry number in my bank account. <laughs> if I'm grifting, I'm doing a terrible doing job. Wrong. Like you don't terrible. have a the Candace Owens show yet. <laughs> um, but, but I should say Jeffrey, I think he was genuinely, he was coming to your defense. Right, he said right. people were being nasty and mean to you mm. on the internet and being unfair. I think is the word he used. He went on to say that he wishes more people were as serious and thoughtful as you are. Mm. But that's when he went into the, the subtly infuriating bit where it's like, he's, he's young and he's inexperienced. And I think people are taking advantage of him. No, he has ideas and you don't like his ideas. 
and because he's reached conclusions that are different than yours about a philosophical question, not an empirical question, a philosophical question, which on the basis of our differing priors, it's understandable that we reach different conclusions. You think he's wrong. Well, and now might, he's might, defective. It might he's also deficient. be a question of he ends up in places that I don't like. Mm-hmm. Right. And so my question for you is, however you define your politics and please don't, uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, if 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 we uh, if we believe in the kind of uh, left right spectrum, which, again, we don't. We don't. Um, but do the places that you find yourself publishing into, how do they compare to where you align yourself? Are they to your right or are they to your left predominantly, or is it just a mix? Um, so I publish mainly in Quillette, which, you know, I, some people see it as center right. Some people see it as centrist. I think it self-defines as centrist. It's, um, I've published one in national review, which is definitely conservative. Mm-hmm. I've published one in the New York times, which is definitely liberal one in the wall street journal, definitely conservative. Although uh, that depends. Oh, so if the wall well, street journal op-ed page, op-ed page. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, you know, uh, frankly, it's just, you know, I've tried to publish, I've, I've gotten rejected from more centrist center left outlets. I'm not going to no, not worth naming them, but, um, you know, I want to publish where people will hear me at, you know, and I, and, and I don't, I don't, you know, even though, like I said, I've never voted Republican, I don't like the idea of shunning half the country Mm. for, you know, being enamored with a politician, I think is a douchebag. Mm -hmm. Like these are normal people for the most part, good people for the most part. So the idea of like shunning any publication that is conservative for fear of being branded that way seems like a mistake, but I also pick my spots. So, you know, I've been invited to go on Fox news many times at, and uh, declined every time thus far. I'm not going to shun Fox News permanently, but it's it. You know, I I happen to dislike cable news in general. Um, I happen to see very little value added to my life by by going on cable news. I don't watch cable news because I find it to be so petty and so generally not. Uh, like I'll watch the clip of Camille going on when he goes on because that's what I want to see. Yeah. But I'm not going to watch cable news for an hour generally because I find it to be pretty toxic, even though sometimes there, there's some very high quality people on there. So I've, I've stayed away from that, you know, um, I don't know. I'm just trying to figure it out. Go, go to places that are serious where people are having high level conversations people I respect, people I would consume myself as a, as a viewer or listener or reader. So that's how I make my decision. I I write for national review sometimes because I read national review sometimes Mm -hmm. often I read Quillette. I read wall street journal op-ed sometimes I read New York times. So I I enjoy all of those outlets and um, I, I, I don't watch Fox news. So I don't even know enough really to suss it out. So that's kind of how I, how I've been navigating the space. Yeah. We should probably get out of here soon. 
Um, I've got to be at my house at 7 a.m. tomorrow to start a long day that will probably end at about 9 uh, and will involve hammers and maybe jackhammers and all sorts of other things. Uh, perhaps even a, a spontaneous fire that burns the building to the ground and then I could collect the insurance. I wouldn't. I didn't do it. Nope. It wasn't me. <laughs> um, but uh, Coleman, I mean, you got anything else before we go? I'll ask you the, the last the next... question that I heard you asked during the uh during the event, isn't that wasn't that the last question? Anything else uh, that you'd like to comment on that you? Oh heard? yeah, well I got this SoundCloud <laughs> thing. <laughs> I was going to say my new mixtape coming out. My new mixtape coming out. I should have the next time you come. I have the DJ Clue, uh, not DJ Clue, uh, Funkmaster Flex bombs that I can just like drop during the middle of our conversation. Every time you say shit. <laughs> And I suppose I shouldn't really talk about Funkmaster Flex in a way that isn't derogatory since I'm kind of friendly with Charlemagne and they have like a thing. And they're not they're gonna friendly. Beef. Yeah, they're not friends. So I'm still riding with Charlemagne. To the extent he's riding with me, I don't know if we're really friendly. I mean, he's got to come on the show to prove how friendly he is. Yeah, too. We'll, we'll work on that. We need to have Schultz back on too. Schultz is mm-hmm. great. Um, but Coleman, anything that you are compelled to say that we haven't said and i still have many questions that i haven't asked and things that i want to chat with you about that i haven't but we have to leave at some point so. i mean i don't really have anything i don't i never know what to say when yeah <laughs> like i'll do what i did in congress and say no you need to develop some stock shit for that so just to I, close didn't, I didn't want to just talk just to talk that's fine that's, that's what that's, everyone that's, does that's what they ask you for some bullshit uh, definitely next time plug your album <laughs> now at this point you don't have a reason not to yes because yeah, everyone knows but like, and they're going the to try to degrade you for this next one coming out that's the question oh who knows yeah i'll get back to it do you have any jazz gigs coming up yeah but I actually don't want to say. Yeah, I, I feel you. Because then <laughs> it, it only takes one crazy person to show up with a machete. Hey, that, halfway Stop after it was out it. of my mouth. Don't I, say I things it. like that. It would just be the ADOS dopes coming to, pro- to protest you. I don't need that. Um, gosh, just ugh, so much contempt. Well, I have a closing question then, mm. since we're here. Uh-huh. Um, have you given any more thought to Camille's perspective on race and oh how boy. it's silly and Why? how this is all of French us should goodbye. stop it. He does this every time. Stop it too. Have you given any um, thought? Just the it? whole concept, race abolition. Just, just <clears throat> yes. Are you on board with the program? Do you do you do you see now um, the I've, error of your ways, young man, boy? Would you? <laughs> the door to my office is always open to you. I'm no. ready to instruct <laughs> you in the way that you ought to go. <laughs> I mean, I um, what is often called colorblindness, the idea that at least in its best control, your race is a trivial part of who you are. That is something I wholeheartedly resonate with. And I don't think you talk about, I don't, I don't know that you use the word colorblind necessarily to describe no. it because yeah. I don't know what, why, why don't you? I don't know, honestly, Here's the thing, I'm not sure, like, but I, I use racially agnostic because that's kind of the truth. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I, or, or maybe I'm a race atheist. Maybe agnostic isn't strong enough. I think it's nonsense. I don't subscribe to it. And not only do I not subscribe to it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to. When people mm-hmm. say things like, you don't speak for us, I think, thank God you're not one of us. Yeah. You're not a real black person. I say, yeah, I'm not part of that shit. I don't want to be a member of your club. You might kind of want me on your team, but I'm not interested. I think it's all hokum, and I think mm-hmm. it's all generally destructive. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with all of that. Oh, good. I, I'm not sure that it follows that I can't refer to myself as black just descriptively. Like, mm-hmm. when I say I'm black, I don't mean anything other than, you know, when I call a chair a chair. I'm, I'm using the word in my language to describe what people 
mean by that? What people mean by that? I'm Even just, though you're 100% Puerto Rican. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and would you put into the same thing? Am I a white chair? I mean, would you think about calling me white? <laughs> I mean, I'm if I were to, if curious. someone asked you what, what, what race is Matt, I would say he's a white guy. Yeah. yeah but, but that, that doesn't come laden with all kinds of assumptions about well, really anything else other than your skin I mean, color, I think the only know? way that it would come up is if, like, uh, I stole your wallet and was running down the street and you're, yeah. like, trying to get a, a police description. He's a white I, guy. I think, I mean, for me, <laughs> some, of the, some of the way that I interpret, because I first time I met Camille, obviously, and the subsequent many years, I've thought he's insane with this shit. But, um, <laughs> is that what happened the first time I met you? I was like, hi, I'm Camille, I'm not black. Is that what happened? It came up the first yes. couple conversations. Really? At least for me, How yeah. many people yeah. have you, like, sprung this out? Like, the That's last not, question of a fifth column <laughs> podcast of a total normal person who's never met you before and you're like well I have a different perspective on right I'm like oh Jesus Christ we're like on the the 111th minute here and you're going to introduce this my back on you well, well, well let me tell you what, what, what I do agree with you about and, and this is perhaps a way of saying the same thing I think that people who do research based on race and this applies to researchers on the left who study racial wealth gaps mm-hmm racial income gaps, racial crime gaps, and people on the right who study race and IQ gaps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think all of that research, it should should be allowed to be done, of course, Mm -hmm. but we should view it with much less prestige. It is much more useless than Mm -hmm. it is useful, Mm -hmm. which is to say breaking society into racial groups of black and white and studying some difference on that fault line seems far more arbitrary than people seem to assume. Like mm-hmm. if we're talking about IQ, there are all kinds of IQ gaps we could study. We could look like, like, like we could look, you could ask is the, the, the difference in income between white Americans of Russian descent and white Americans of French descent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can imagine a researcher, you know, asking IQ questions there, but they're not. And mm-hmm. are we worse off? Yeah. No. Yeah. Because we that the whole paradigm of research there, and also on the le, uh, on the left, are we worse off for not knowing, for for not being you know not losing sleep over wealth gaps, intro race, mm-hmm. which is say within the same race. Sure. It's not clear to me that that we're, that we're much worse off because people aren't interested in those research questions. And I think the we could difference between different Asian groups, right? Yeah. Like no one's talking about the, like the four to one income gap between Taiwanese Americans and Hmong Americans. Mm-hmm. Are we worse off for that fact? Obviously there's only, only hatred could explain our disinterest in their desperate situation. Right. So, I'm with you. so I think we should really, uh, downregulate the degree to which we use race as a paradigm for research on the right and the left. Okay, voluntarily. I, I want to upgrade it from useless to like actually harmful. Yes. That's what I like. Right. Cause it's, it's divisive. It's mm-hmm. like the moment you see a headline that pits blacks against whites, when it could, you could be pitting any number of groups against it. Like you could, you, this is the one you're choosing to focus on. It, if you're black or white, it inherently feels like you are implicated and, it encourages you to view America in these rather arbitrary terms when there are almost an infinity of like plausible ways you could carve up the country. That's right. So I, I think this may be another way of basically expressing the same view that, that you have. But that I, I, I look at it more from that perspective and I, I worry more about how we talk about 
gaps. Well, I just want you to tell the truth. You are Puerto Rican, Mexican, <laughs> masquerading as a black man in America, That's speaking on behalf of our people, and I want it to stop. That's why he works so hard, though. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. That's true. That is a good callback. Um, I like that. A pre-show Jeez. conversation. That's pre-show. true. They don't know. Um, I think we're done. We're done. Can we get out of here. Cool. Anything I, else, guys? Anything? No. No. You're good. good? Screw Moynihan. Great. You don't. We we haven't said anything about Iran. We we did. Don't bomb it. Bad don't idea. Bomb, don't bomb Iran. If it means watching Tucker Carlson, go ahead and watch Tucker Carlson. Yeah. And don't bomb Iran. Are we Stupid all Team idea. Tucker here? Is that what's going on? God damn it! If you have to <laughs> choose between this, Tucker, this, Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, who uh, are you? Who are you with, Fisher? I'm, I'm with the. Uh, I'm, I'm bringing back the bow tie. <laughs> That's how hardcore I'm into Tucker, right? At this very moment, yeah. For, yeah. for that one specific issue, right? Yeah. When he's not blaming libertarians for running Washington, yes, yeah. or or talking about immigrants making America dirtier, all those things. I'm going to forget those as long as we don't bomb Iran this week. Good, good for you guys. I appreciate you made a good choice. Coleman, you have anything to say about Iran? Is this important to you? Um, because I'm a grifter, I guess, <laughs> I, guess I say bomb. <laughs> bomb. Yeah. There you go. That is a joke, Twitter. That's good. That is yeah. a joke, That's Twitter. Good. Um, well, guys, I've enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Wonderful to be back. Um, will we be back next week? I think so. Hope so. I think so. All right. Bye. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.